Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is part eight of our study of the book of James, and today we are going to finish chapter two in the discussion of faith versus works, and then we will move on to chapter three next time. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter two, and we will begin in verse 18 for some context, and then we will finish the chapter. The word says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray to the Father. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us to your word today, that we may grow in wisdom and understanding. Where are we, Lord? Please show us where we are in our hearts. Do we have a real faith? Do we have a working faith? Is it a faith that pleases you? We know, Lord, that without faith it is impossible to please you. and We want to be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Please show us the true way. Please reveal to us our heart's attitude towards you and towards your word. Are we where we need to be? And if we are not where we need to be, please help us to get there. Please help us to see the truth that is in your word today. Guide us through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in an effort to put this topic to rest today, we are going to complete the conversation about faith versus works. Do you need to have faith, and do you need to have works? As we discussed last time, faith requires works in order for it to be legitimate. The works do not save you, but they are evidence that you have a true saving faith. The alternative would be to have no faith at all, or to have a faith like a demon. They know that God is one. They fear God in that regard, but they do not obey his word, and they do not produce works that are of a saving fashion. So in the same way, our faith can look like that as well, and that is something that we need to be consciously aware of and seeking not to imitate. Therefore, the depth of what demons call faith is useless 
as it says in verse 20. James uses two historical figures that are in the Bible as an illustration of what working faith looks like, what a legitimate faith does in response to God's activity, and how they show that they really do have a saving faith. This is important because in verse 24, it teaches a very core doctrine of the Christian faith, justification by a productive faith. And that is what we're going to see when we look at both Abraham and Rahab, or Rahab. But I try to stay as close to the original pronunciation of the name. So let's take a look at what these two people did. And the best place to look at that is not only back in the book of Genesis and Joshua, but more specifically, let's look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about them. So please turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's begin reading at verse 8. If James is going to use Abraham as an example, let's see exactly what is pointed out here as being a productive saving faith. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Let's stop there for a moment. If we recall the definition of what true faith really is, what does verse 1 say in this chapter? It is the assurance of things hoped for, which means future events, and the conviction of things not seen. So what the writer of Hebrews does is point us to how Abraham responded to the word of God. And what did he do? He went out of Ur of the Chaldeans, from where all his family was, and he listened to the voice of God, even though he didn't have the land to himself. It mentions many times in the book of Genesis that There were certain peoples in the land that were against him. And so he was a sojourner. He was a stranger in that land. And yet, even though he was a stranger, he believed God when he said that he was going to inherit the land and that his descendants were going to live in it. He also had no idea where he was going. God didn't exactly give him a roadmap of where to go to get to the promised land. But Abraham simply just went, and he let God be the one to guide him. And so, not only was the promise not something that was going to be fulfilled in his lifetime, but also he did not have clear direction of where God wanted him to go. But it didn't matter. He simply obeyed what God said, and he let him take care of it. That is something that he could not see on his own. It was nothing tangible that he can hold on to as collateral for what God is saying. But he went anyway, and God thoroughly blessed him, as we've seen in the book of Genesis. Let's move on to verse 11 about his wife, Sarah. 
By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So even Sarah made up her mind to believe God at his word. We see in the Genesis account that when she heard that she was going to be pregnant at a ripe old age of 90, that she laughed. She did not think that that was possible. But when God said, yes, you laughed, and yes, it's going to happen, she believed God. And why did she believe him? Because she set her mind to know that God is faithful. And if he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And she believed him at his word, and it happened exactly as he said. Do we have that kind of fundamentally childlike faith in God? Because this is absolutely essential, right? If you have kids of your own, or perhaps you have nieces and nephews, think about how you interact with them. Children don't have a lot of worldly knowledge. There's a lot of things they don't know or understand. But so often we will tell them things and they will believe us. And often that is what the Bible calls a childlike faith. And so in this same way, we see that Sarah had a childlike faith in that she took God at his word, whether or not she was going to see anything as a confirmation or not. And in this case, she obviously did because she came with child at the age of 90. Well, let's investigate this a little bit further. Let's look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So all these people died without seeing the full result that they were promised, right? Abraham didn't get to see that his descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven, right? While he lived, we know that his son Isaac lived, but that's about it. But during that time, he didn't get to see that his descendants were going to be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. But it didn't matter because he knew God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. That's what he means here when he says that they welcomed them from a distance. They welcomed the promises of God, even though they were far off. Verse 14, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If you're going to have faith in God, then you need to have faith in a God-like inheritance. So often when we think of inheritances, we think of money or we think of property, and those things are tangible, yes, but they are temporal. They can't go with us anywhere. 
They are useless to us when we die. But when it comes to the promises of God, if he has indeed promised something in the future, we need to hold him to his word. We need to believe that what he has said is actually true. Whether if it's about you, it's about his people in general, the things that he has planned for us in the future, how eternity is going to turn out, all of those things are promises that God is worthy of believing in. But do we do that? Do we believe the promises of God? But here's the reality. As Christians, we are pilgrims on this earth. We are sojourners. We are strangers, aliens. And we no longer have an earthly kingdom. We don't have a country that we belong to anymore on earth. Our true homeland now is heaven. And we can't see heaven. And we can't get there on our own. And especially while we live on earth, we can't get there. But we believe that God is going to take us to heaven. We believe that he is preparing a place for us. So everything that we do should be motivated by that promise. We have a heavenly kingdom to look forward to. So why am I not giving my best efforts while I live now? While what I do now is temporal and temporary, it is of eternal significance because I am building up accolades and treasures for myself for heaven. And besides that, if I truly love God, I would want to obey him. I would want to do what is pleasing in his sight. Saving faith is pleasing to God, as we've seen. Let's continue. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham was willing to go to any length in order to obey God. If God told him to kill his only son, he believed that God had the power to bring him back to life. And this was merely a test of his faith. He was willing to go to any lengths for God because he knew God was able to reverse or to enhance any situation. Do we feel this way about God? Because this is a saving faith. Anything less than this is not a saving faith. It is an empty faith. It is a demonic faith. We have to be careful with this. And now, briefly, let's look at Rahab. Come with me to verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So even though Rahab was not a Jew, she believed that God was who he says he was. She did not know God personally. She had heard about the wonders that God was doing in the wilderness with the people of Israel for 40 years. And she was afraid. 
She had a healthy fear of God, and she was thoroughly convinced that the Jewish people were correct in who their God was and that he was a reality. And so when it came down to testing whether or not her faith was legitimate, she was met with a very difficult circumstance, right? There were spies that were sent from Israel to check out Jericho. And she kept these spies safe so that they could fulfill their mission and that God's people could be successful. And at the end of hiding them, she gives them her thoughts and intentions to these spies, and she talks about her faith and her fear of the Lord. But all of that talk that she would have had with these spies would have been pointless if she did not house them and keep them safe. Think about what we read last time in James, about how you see someone in need, and they're cold and they're hungry, and you simply said, be at peace, be warm, and be filled. Imagine Rahab did that with the spies. She sees that they're in trouble. She sees that they need help. And she says, oh, spies, be at peace. Go and be safe. Everything will be just fine. I'm not going to help you, but just take care of yourselves. Do you see how that could appear to be an illegitimate faith? Because even though she said all the right things, she did nothing to back it up. And so that is what James is talking about here, about having faith with the works. The works, again, do not save you. But real faith produces works. So based on what James has been telling us, what is the bottom line? What is the answer to his original question? What is his original question? He said in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer is no, and James has built his case and has defended it well. His point with using Abraham and Rahab is that any kind of faith that they claimed to have would not have been true faith if it did not produce real works of obedience. That is the sign of true faith. If you believe God at his word, you're going to obey him. Not only in a special revelation to you, but his general revelation that is in the Bible. Do you obey the commands that he's already given us in his word? We can talk all day until we're blue in the face that we love God, but if we don't show the world and in our own private life that we love God, then it's all a lie. It's simply just talk. Talk is cheap, right? And so this is the kind of faith that Jesus describes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The difference between a man that builds his house on the rock and the man that builds his house on the sand. Building your house on the rock is genuine faith in God. But building your house on the sand is where you say that you obey, but you don't prove it. Like he says, the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man building his house on the sand. That's disobedience. If we're not obeying God, then how are we going to stand? We will not stand 
And that's what Jesus' point is. So again, through Abraham and Rahab, we have been shown that these works and this kind of saving faith vindicates you. Abraham lived in a time period hundreds of years before the law of Moses was ever written. He didn't have a written law or a code to live by. But simply, he put his faith in God, and that vindicated him. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved by his faith alone. It justified him. And he showed that it was a legitimate faith because it produced works that were in line with repentance and obedience. Rahab was the same way. She was not a Jew. But even though she wasn't a Jew, she still believed in God. She performed works that were evidence that she believed, and she was able to do something great through that. And God recognized that and blessed her. So much so that she is an ancestor of King David also, and of the Messiah. She ended up marrying one of those spies. And through her lineage, the man Boaz was born, and he ended up marrying Ruth, and then Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. So it really goes to show that it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, where you came from, what you've done in your past, but as long as you love the Lord and you seek to obey him, God will bless that. God will have grand plans for you, and we don't even get to see half of what he has in store for us or what is going to be produced from us. But here's the thing. Should we be expecting to see the fruit of our labors? One would hope so, but at the same time, this is evidence right here between these two people that Abraham didn't really get to see the fruit of his labors, right? He got to see maybe a small portion of it, but he didn't get to see all his descendants. Rahab got to see something, right? She was there when Jericho fell. All the wall fell except her house. That's the clearest confirmation I could get for that occasion. But not everybody's going to get that, right? And that's okay. Because we know that God is good in keeping his word. And although we are not always faithful, God is always faithful. So I'm very thankful that we have the examples of Rahab and Abraham in the Old Testament as evidence that justification by faith is how you become saved. And even though that is in the original books of the Bible, this was in the original law of Moses that the Pharisees clung to, they did not understand it at the depth that it should have been. This is why when Jesus walked the earth and he preached repentance and obedience and having faith like that, it was such a foreign concept to them because they didn't understand it the way God intended it to be understood. But as we conclude today, let's point the topic towards something extremely relevant to us, and that is the gospel. Let's talk about the gospel in comparison to sinners. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. And you, and he's talking about you, the Christian, 
you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So just like faith without works is dead, so you were spiritually dead before God intervened in your life. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, also known as Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, oh, and I love that verse, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amen. Praise God. God did everything for us. There was nothing we could do to contribute to our salvation. And this is where the idea that working your way into salvation falls on its head. It's because it exalts man to a level that it does not belong. We were dead in our trespasses. We are walking corpses, if you will, without God. So how can the dead make themselves alive? That's not possible. Dead people can't save themselves. And so we need God to intervene in order to breathe life into us. Think about in the creation story. He formed man from the dust of the ground. But he wasn't a man until God breathed his life into his nostrils, and then he became a living being. That is the exact kind of illustration that God shows us here as to our spiritual state. We do not truly live until God breathes his life into us spiritually. And that happens at the moment of salvation. And it is all a gift of God. It is all grace. It is all undeserved favor. And as a result of that saving power, it creates faith in us. And that faith is what justifies us. And then it says that works do not save us because then we would have something to boast about. We would have something to lord over people. Hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. That's why I'm going to heaven and you're not. Does that make sense? Because all of this is outside of us, it is not produced in us naturally. Therefore, we can't take any credit for it. Therefore, God gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. 
But perhaps the coolest thing of all is that not only did he select you for salvation, but he also has reserved good works for you. He's already set up what he wants you to do to further his kingdom and to act in obedience to him. He has already laid out what he wants you to do. You can call it your mission, your agenda, your itinerary, the short-term, long-term goals, whatever you want to call it. But God has reserved works specifically for you. He has prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. He has designed us this way as Christians because we were made in the image of Christ. And Christ has performed the ultimate work in being the salvation of all mankind. And we are going to follow in his footsteps in a specific way. We are not going to die on the cross for the sake of people, but we are called to do good works. And that will show the world that we truly believe the words of God. Not only in the way we conduct ourselves privately, but the world will see that we are different because we love God and seek to make him known. That is how we will be the beacon of light shining on the hilltop for all to see. Such a glorious reality, isn't it? God has produced so much good things in us, and so often we take them for granted, or we waste our time, we waste our energies doing things that do not work toward this end. This is the time to repent and to be sober-minded. We are now acutely aware of what God has prepared for us and what he is doing in us. We can't be getting in the way of ourselves. To be clear, we can't stop God. We can't thwart his plans to change us. But surely God wants us to cooperate with him. He wants us to be on board. and He wants us to be obedient. So why don't we do that? Let's work toward that end in being obedient to the cross of Christ and performing good works that are consistent with repentance. It will take the world by storm, and we need it desperately in these times. And with that, I think this is a good stopping point for today. Next time, we will be going into chapter 3, and it is another difficult topic, the taming of the tongue. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.